Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Tim Bowen Show. As usual, I'm your host, Tim Bowen, broadcasting from the depths of Mordor in uh, snowy Western Canada. That's right, Western Canada. I say that um, as a Canadian, even though I'm in Alberta and uh, the people that control us are literally 2,000 or more miles away in their comfy Laurentian elite homes powered by the oil that my people dig out of the ground and make it a productive product, uh, living off the fruits of the labor of my people out here who uh, funnel money through the income tax pipeline over to Ottawa for them to do what they want with, to funnel back to us uh, with strings attached, like how we run our healthcare, how we run our business, all those kinds of things. What can we do about this? Well, what is the history of um, the raw deal that the West seems to continually be getting? My next guest can answer that question. Uh, join me in welcoming Jillian Davis, author of Wexit, The Reluctant Rebellion. Reluctant, Jillian? Are we, I'm not feeling all that reluctant these days. <laughs> I think there are some people that are still reluctant, but there's less of them every day. Yeah. For sure. I, you know, I want to uh, go go all the way back in time and kind of have you take us through how we got to this place. Um, but I want to start with uh, concretizing this issue. And I, I thought it was interesting in your book, in Chapter 8, uh, you kind of talk briefly about a NISCU businessman who hung himself from the rafters of his business. Um what has that got to do with, with the situation we face out west here? What has that got to do with uh, Confederation and, and the quandary we're in here? Well, it, it goes back to, I mean, this same man had already been through the NEP in the 1980s. And seeing the same thing happen again, he just could not continue having to fight that fight. And, the, right. and that the issue with being a being in Western Canada, you have this situation that we have revisited umpteen times. The situation never gets resolved. We keep trying, but it, it doesn't seem to matter what we do. It just comes back to the same thing. We keep facing this brick wall over and over and over again. And at some point, people get desperate and they do desperate things like taking their own lives. Right. And, and I, I mean, I, I wanted to start with that story. Because, um, you know, I think this this seems like an abstract problem to a lot of people, maybe out east, especially uh, who who might be allies in this fight with us, but who who just see it as kind of an abstract fight. It's like, you know, oh, yeah, you want a little bit more control. You want a little bit more sovereignty. That's nice. I guess that doesn't seem so bad. But but no, this is a, this is literally a fight in many cases for our lives, um, you know, coming from living in Fort McMurray for for uh, 15 years, you know, government policy has everything to do with how that community uh, flourishes. And, and, you know, it's the same with all of Alberta. We, we are uh, energy producers largely. We're agricultural producers. Um, all the industries that, that uh, allow us to flourish, that serve the marketplace, that demands our products, that, that uplifts the people that, that are able to use our products. That is all um, built kind of on the substrate or the context of government policy. And that policy and that agenda is driven largely by Ottawa. And, and so when we can't get our energy to market, um, even though promises have been made and even though historically we've been able to, and then on a whim, it ch changes on a dime and the whole climate changes that has real world results in people having to hand the keys into the bank, uh, people having to close up their business, uh, people not being able to, uh, you know, send their kids to, uh, to, to, uh, their, their sports endeavors or, or to their schools or, or whatever. I mean, this has dramatic effects on lives. So that's kind of why I wanted to start with that story um, because I thought that was a, a, you know, a very poignant example of, of, you know, exactly how 
are how, how this, these policies affect us. And, and I can tell you another one that's more personal to me. My um, dad was a business owner in the 80s um, and went through because he was his business was reliant on the oil and gas industry and he lost it in the 80s. And he, you know, he's, he's gone on, he's done other things. But um, a few years ago, I went to Miskew with him. And this, of course, he's pointing out to me all of these empty lots saying, you know, just a couple of years ago, these lots were all full. And he was nearly in tears because he was seeing the same pattern again, and it was breaking his heart as well. So, you know, the, this, um, the, the feeling outside of Alberta quite often is, like you said, it's kind of this theoretical idea in, in people's heads. It's not the personal. It's not the knock-on effects of losing everything that's important to you. And right. and even the insult of Ottawa saying, oh, we'll send you money. Well, it's not about the money. I, I talk about two businessmen in the book that um, they had said to us, you know, just if they just take the cuffs off, just let us work. That's all they're asking for. Right, and I mean, right now, right now, we are facing... Europe, who desperately wants oil, and our prime minister is saying, you can't have ours. Hmm. Why? Yeah. Yeah, ours, it, as if he's the one that has anything to do with getting it out of the ground and delivering it to market. I, I mean, all he can do is block it, right? And and what ownership claim does he have? I mean, that's, that's another podcast. But um, Let's go back to how this all started. Um, you know, take us back to the founding of Confederation and, you know, the British North American Act. What what was Alberta and kind of the West? Um, what was their status? What were the people out West, let's say, settlers? Um, what was their experience of Confederation at that time? Um I don't have my book in front of me right now, <laughs> um, but basically what happened was that you had these settlers in Western Canada and particularly in the prairies. I think the prairies are the ones that have really taken the brunt of everything because even BC was treated differently than the prairies. The prairies were part of the Northwest Territories and that piece of property, including the Northwest Territories and the Yukon, were bought by Ottawa. And that was essentially so that you could tie the whole country together because BC was on this the other side of this territory. And then you had the four provinces in Eastern Canada right. at that time. So what Sir John A. Macdonald was trying to do was tie the country together so that it was all one big piece. And, and so they bought, <clears throat> pardon me, this Northwest Territories and they ran a railroad across. And that was also part of why BC sort of joined was it, it was supposed to be this sort of symbiotic relationship, right? Right. Um, now in the and, and just to, just to pause for a second on that, it, it was called Rupert's Land, right? And it was owned yeah. by the Hudson Bay Company. And you know the quote you have in the book is from John A. Macdonald: "All these poor people know is that Canada has bought the country from the Hudson's Bay Company." And that they are handed over like a flock of sheep to us, like a flock of sheep. So here is our herd that the Hudson's Bay is basically selling to us. Um, and and uh, what a poignant quote in that that would kind of set the tone for um, Confederation going forward in a lot of ways. And I thought it, it was interesting, too, because in, in your book, you know, a lot of things I didn't know. Uh, were revealed as you know again audience i highly recommend this go to amazon get wexit the reluctant rebellion by jillian davis and you'll learn all sorts of facts uh, th these aren't just again abstract facts but it really puts into context where we're at today and how we got here um the the interesting thing to me was that uh you know the the owner of rupert's land hudson's bay i mean they they were considering selling this land to the United States. Alaska had been bought by the U.S. for a pretty penny. They could have sold Rupert's land for something like $40 million back then to the U.S. Canada ended up buying it for $1.5 under pressure from, from Great Britain. But what a different story our, our people in Alberta and out west would have had we uh, been bought by the U.S. instead of Canada. I, I just thought that was an interesting point so yeah it's and personality wise the west was more like 
the United States than it, it was like Eastern Canada. Um, and I talk about that a little bit in the book as well. Right. Yeah. You talk about the garrison mentality that, that they had out uh, East, you know, the, compared to the kind of pioneer mentality of adventurism and ex exploration and being open to new experiences and be willing to take risk and a rugged individuality and that sort of thing. So maybe talk a little bit about that as well. Well, in, in the East, it's understandable why they had that garrison mentality. They had been under attack from the United States um, in regards to like whenever the U.S. was becoming independent from Great Britain, um, they wanted to take Canada into that space as well, into independence. But Canadians fought back and were like, no, we want to stay with Great Britain at that time. Um, there were a lot of reasons for that, you know. It, it was a different time. So to know what was in the hearts and minds of people at that time, it's hard to say. We can only sure. guess, right? Um, but because they were constantly being attacked, they were very protective of themselves and their territory. Whereas out West, it was like a wide open space that you couldn't have protected anyway, because let's face it, that those prairies are vast and broad and even trying to keep a fence up in some of those farms is almost impossible. So, right. Um, so there, there's just a very different mentality. And when um, that part of the, the West was brought into Canada, they were part of it was even with this thinking that you have these people that are rugged individualists, explorers, um, very self-sufficient in many ways that went against or, or rubbed the wrong way compared to um, Eastern Canada that was about protecting itself from foreign invaders the West was just sort of an open right. area, right? It was like the new frontier and, and, you know, the people were explorers and to be an explorer, you, you're kind of cut from a different cloth than maybe someone who garrisons themselves behind a wall and, and is just interested in defending where they're at. Right. Correct. Yeah. And, and one could see how Western Canada and this new frontier would appeal, be very different uh, would be looked at very differently from those who are going out and settling it and taming it to those who were behind a wall looking out at it, right, and wondering how they could use it. And and so it's not hard to see how uh, those people behind that wall might look at at it as a a protection from you know U.S. and also as a, a means of getting resources in behind their garrisoned wall, <laughs> so to speak. Um, all right. Yeah. In, anything else to, to add about um, the raw deal Canada or, or I guess uh, Western Canada got in those early days of confederation? Well, I think the biggest thing is because that territory was bought by Canada, there has always been this sort of thinking in the East that um, the prairies, the territories are still, even though they're not, they're still owned. They were bought and paid for. And therefore, they're more like property mm. than territory. And I think that is a disconnect in the mentality between East and West as well. Right. And and I think you mentioned in the book that, um, you know, when it, these Alberta and Saskatchewan, these the, these territories were brought into confederation, uh, they were, you, we basically signed away our... Um, uh, our mineral rights and our crown land uh, to be under federal control or ownership or something like that. Yeah. Whenever, um, particularly Alberta and Saskatchewan and Manitoba sort of at, a, I think it was, it was an earlier date, but there were other um, pieces of land that brought, that were brought into Canada in between um, Saskatchewan and Alberta becoming provinces. But when all of that was happening, um, and I think it was Prince Edward Island, if I remember correctly, um, that came in sort of afterwards. And they got a very different deal than what Alberta, Saskatchewan and Manitoba got. So it's almost like um, those prairie provinces were treated like lesser, lesser places. There was a lot of um, federal control over the prairies that never happened in other provinces hmm. and wasn't even expected in other provinces. Right. Right. Okay. So let, that brings us up to, let, let's bring it up to uh, Trudeau senior then. What uh, can you just talk about his legacy in terms of uh, 
Western Canada? Well, uh, he had a great disdain for the West. And I don't think there are many Westerners that would disagree with that statement. Um, everything from saying to, I think it was Saskatchewan farmers that he said, why should I sell your wheat? Um, because of the wheat boards, uh, putting, I mean, it wasn't him that put uh, the Western provinces under the wheat boards, but he definitely enforced them. Um, and then the, the national energy program where he was trying to gain control over the oil and gas industry in the West. Um, the guy was just bad news for the West from start to finish. And even, I mean, the most classic of all is uh, whenever he gave Westerners the middle finger while on a train. Right, right. Uh, the, the old salmon arm salute, or as it later became known, the Trudeau salute. Um, <laughs> what Can you talk a little bit about, you know, if, you, if you're a, a farmer or an oilman, in in alberta what what does federal government involvement look like maybe to our american friends uh, you know what is this wheat board and uh, national energy program uh, how does that affect the day-to-day -day life of a farmer or oilman well i'll, I'll start with um oil just because it's almost quicker and easier <laughs> yeah. even though it's a very complicated subject basically the um what's supposed to happen is that the province is supposed to own that resource but because of things that were put in place over time it was the federal government keeps trying to take ownership of that natural resource so for example in pierre elliott trudeau's time whenever he brought in the national energy program he couldn't take ownership i think it was brownlee in the 1950s that had created ownership of that resource for Alberta, but well, for all resources in Alberta, but the federal government started trying to take control over it right, right from the beginning. And the National Energy Program, because they couldn't take it, they decided that how they would do that is as soon as that oil leaves the province, it becomes property essentially of the federal government. So, so long as we keep it within the province, it's fine. But if we take it outside of, then it becomes right. a, a different commodity, right? Yeah. So now how, how are you going to get your oil to market without while maintaining control over it? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So he was bringing in taxes and all kinds of things and trying to de-incentivize the market by giving endless pools of money to anybody that was willing to drill for oil outside of Alberta, um, right. like in Canada, but outside of Alberta. So it made it more lucrative for those same investors that had been investing in Alberta to go to different provinces and different areas because they could just get endless amounts of cash from the federal government. Right. So it just destroyed, absolutely destroyed, devastated the oil and gas industry um, in Alberta. And Saskatchewan is starting to develop theirs as well. So um, this was just, it, it was awful. It, it was it was a way of really putting the thumbscrews into Alberta and that entire industry. Right. Um, now, as far as the farmers are concerned, during World War One, I, I believe it was, they brought in these wheat boards to try to, it, it was a way of being able to feed the soldiers and the country while it was at war. Right. And it was brought back in again during World War II as well. The, the farmers liked the way it was running. It was working for them at that time because prior to that, there were these big um, market boards that had come in and were kind of taking advantage of the farmers. So they weren't getting a fair deal. And so having the government involved at that time was making it more equitable for farmers so they didn't have to compete with these um, big boards, sort of a, a middleman in the market. Hmm. After the war, we kept it for a while, but whenever it became a point where it wasn't working anymore, um, the prairies were actually forced to stay with the board. So Ontario has its own board and it's like a cooperative. The farmers right. own it and run it. But in the prairies, it was not run by a cooperative of farmers. It was run by the government. Right, the federal well, government. Yeah. Right. And it's called the Canada Wheat Board, even though only the only the West Western Canada has to go under this thing. Ontario doesn't. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so um, I think I can't even remember the year now, um, but it was, I believe, late in 
Crate Chen's time, there were a group of farmers that actually, because they were protesting against this wheat board, they wanted it broken up because they were not getting a fair price for their wheat. And they had no choice but to sell it to the government, essentially. And they wanted to sell it on the open market because they were going to get a better deal. So they took some of their wheat, went across the U.S.-Canada border and sold it to Americans for like a dollar for a bag of wheat or whatever. Right. But it was it was symbolic. It was to show that this was ridiculous. And those farmers went to jail for selling that small wow. amount of wheat because they did it outside of the wheat board, outside of federal government control. Insane. Yeah. Crazy, crazy. All right. Um, but... The, you know, it, it, the conservatives haven't necessarily been much better than the liberals here in terms of protecting Western interests. Uh, we fast forward to um, to the, the formation of, uh, you know, the Conservative Party of Canada, which was uh, united under Stephen Harper. There was two factions. There was the Reform Party and there was the Progressive Conservative Party. Um, and similar to what's happening now, and we're seeing a kind of a fracture in the the right wing, in terms of of kind of the the populist um, reformers versus you know that that are kind of going the PPC direction, and then you've got the the kind of standard you know centrist conservatives or or red Tories or progressive conservatives, whatever you want to call them, sticking with the main party. Well, that was going on back in the the early nineties as well. And, um, ultimately they, they came together, uh, under one banner, but, uh, not before Peter McKay got his hands in the deal and, uh, made sure that, uh, things were tipped in favor, let's say of Eastern Canada, not the West where most conservatives tend to live. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. <laughs> it's one of my favorite topics these, these days, right? Um, there is an issue in Canada with representation across the country. This is a massive piece of land. I think it's the second largest territory in the world. Um, and I mean, a lot of that is ice fields, but you know, right. there are parts of the country that are not, they're, they're more sparsely populated than other parts. So for example, Quebec, the province of Quebec has 8 million people in it between Alberta um, Saskatchewan and Manitoba, I think we're at about six or seven. So we don't have that whole big space does not have enough votes or enough seats to be able to really make any kind of um, substantial change in government or to have its voice heard. And then like, forget about BC, even though I think they're at like six six or seven million now. Um, I think Alberta is at five million right now, four or five. Right. Um, the populations are growing, but we're so behind of 14. I think Toronto, like the greater Toronto area has 14 million people alone. Like it's huge, huge differences in population. And because each seat in our parliament is based on 100,000 um, people in various regions, um, we just don't have the seats out West. So by the time the election hits somewhere in Manitoba, it's over, it's done. It doesn't matter what anybody else votes out West because they could all, everybody in the West could vote against what one and a half provinces in um, Eastern Canada votes and we'd lose. We, right. we'd not get our vote, our, our voices heard, or, or would not be able to like really move the needle. So when the reform party came along and they were, um, they were trying to equalize things, they wanted to do Senate reform that didn't work. And there's a whole story behind that. Um, not entirely Stephen Harper's fault, as many people want to blame him, but it wasn't. Um, it went to the Supreme Court. And that has to do with the 1982 Constitution Act and how they were able to um, again, change things so that it sort of goes against other parts of the, the country. And I know I'm kind of all over the place right now. No, I mean, this is a complex subject and there's lots of lots and lots of moving parts. I mean, there's there's no end to the fuckery of these people. So it's very difficult to untangle it. I understand. Um, so 
anyway, whenever Peter McKay um, from Nova Scotia was getting involved in, um, like the PPC was, or not the PPC, the, the PC, the, the Progressive Conservatives of Canada, they had lost so huge when the reform came along that there was just like, I think maybe a handful of, of members left. The rest were on the, the right was reformers. Um, and then it became the Alliance and there was this whole machinations that happened there. Eventually Stephen Harper took it over, wanted to unite the right. That was the movement. And so he made, he negotiated with um, uh, Peter, Peter McKay to try to bring the two sides together um, one of the stipulations was that uh, because, you know, um, within the Conservative Party, you had to have the East represented, even though like a riding might only have five members. So they started, they, they created a, um, a point system so that those five members in, say, Quebec would be equal to the 10,000 members in Nose Hill, Calgary. So it was... In theory, it was supposed to even things out, but in practice, it actually still keeps the the leaning towards, you know, five people in Quebec can change an election compared to 10,000 in Nose Hill. So there's still that that disconnect and that unfairness with how it's done. Yeah, and that, that was put into, um, you know, the, the basically giving EDAs a vote rather than individual uh, party members a vote essentially right exactly. um, and so that explains how uh, you know Maxime Bernier might lose leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada even though he's got a tremendous amount of support in Western Canada when you have a few ridings with very few members in Eastern Canada vote against them in favor of a more centrist kind of Laurentian elite mentality um, well and they have changed those rules now. The EDAs have to have at least a hundred to get like the full points, but still, they have to have a hundred members. Hundred members, yeah, right, to get the full points. But but still, some EDAs have thousands of members, and you know, compare that with the hundreds in, exactly. uh, you know, it's it, it's uh, it's tipped uh, very much in favor. And so so even with the Conservative Party, which theoretically has. Um, is is most pro-Western uh, or most likely to be pro-Western um, or at least give us a fair shake, we still have the, the playing field tilted in favor of making sure that that someone who looks after Central Canada is is uh, in place at, at the top of the, the CPC kind of hierarchy. Um, yeah, it's insane. Okay, so what's the answer, Jillian? How do we fix this? I personally, I think the first move is to rein in the control within the province. So it's about sovereignty within the province. There are a lot of things, agreements and things that we've made with the federal government that um, gives a lot of power to them instead of keeping it within the province. So, for example, I mean, recently there's been the whole um, situation with the trying to get the RCMP out of Alberta and having our own provincial police force. Um, that's been something that's been talked about for a long time, bringing pensions back into the province's jurisdiction and not into the federal jurisdiction, right. um, changing the way that we pay our taxes, even like everything that there was, um, just, I think it was just before the pandemic there, of course, was just brutal problems within Alberta, as far as finances are concerned. And what Trudeau was saying was, okay, we'll give you the money but you have to use this money to close off old wells. Well, that's great, but that's not what the money was needed for. But because they've already taxed all of this money, and so whenever they give it back to us, we have to follow their rules or what they want us to do. It's not in our best interest, it's in theirs, or whatever they decide is the best thing for, not necessarily the province, but for the country. Right. It's it's the personal income tax. Right. And so it, it comes back to us with strings attached. Maybe it's health transfer payments where they say, listen, you can have this money for your health care. Just you, you got to, you know, uh, prohibit private health care. Like, you know, me as a paramedic, I can't go off and start a community care paramedic service where I, I 
treat consenting adults in their home and keep them out of a bricks and mortar uh, hospital. I can't do that. Um, as long as you prevent old Tim from doing that, you can have these billions of dollars. So, okay, Tim, you can't do that. You're, you're prohibited from doing that. So they control you with these money. Now, I understand um, in your book, you mentioned that Quebec has the power to, um, to do its own personal income tax. It collects personal income tax. Is that instead of the federal government or does it collect it for the federal government? Um, they essentially they collect it for the federal government and then they pay it to the federal government on their own terms. Right. Okay. So that is something that we don't have in any other province. Right. And so, th so that would give us explain how that might give us more leverage um, in confederation if we were well, collecting our own income tax. Then what would happen is that, first of all, we wouldn't be handing the money over to the federal government immediately. Like it wouldn't be taken by the federal government and held there and then given back to us. We're sort of taking out the middleman. And then whenever we pay that money into the federal government, we can make more of our own rules about how that money gets spent. Mm -hmm. So there's been different ways of, of calculating how we would do that, how we would spend that or, or send that money to the federal government. It may be um, contingent on certain agreements between us, but we wouldn't have to pay that bill until they... Um, complied with some of the things that we want or need. Right. Um, right. So, so, so it's all just about kind of getting the ball in our court about giving us a little bit of a time in the driver's seat here with our own money and our own direction. Uh, you mentioned policing before I, uh, you know, I had a coworker bring this up as, you know, what, what's Daniel Smith trying to do here talking about uh, provincializing police. Did she just bring, pulling this out of her ass is you just want to pull more money but no this has been actually on the agenda for quite a while uh you know it was talked about i think in your book you mentioned I think the alberta advantage um uh, letter that stephen harper and and his pals wrote to uh was it ralph, ralph klein at the yeah. time yeah and one of the the demands was provincial policing what what is the benefit of provincial policing um if we're already getting it um, at a kind of bargain cost from the feds? I think the biggest thing is that, first of all, the provincial police would be from the province. So you wouldn't be having people coming from Quebec or Ontario coming into the province and telling their fellow Albertans what to do and how to do it. Um, and, and something interesting just I found out about recently, um, there are, in Calgary, there um they're looking for new Calgary police service people and they're recruiting in Toronto. It's on uh, Toronto radio stations that they're looking for people from Toronto to come in and police Calgarians. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, it's like, okay, so there's no Albertans that are out of work and looking for a job for, you know, the, the, to serve on the police force. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Oh. Um, and the same thing goes with like, if it was a provincial police force, we would be able to have people from the province. We'd be able to hire our own people to work in our province and to take care of their own people. And maybe we wouldn't have issues like, um, I think it was Ocean uh, Weisblatt that was nearly tased by some Calgary officers right. a while back. <laughs> and yeah. And uh, I mean, we could, we could go back also to the, the high prairie, uh, or high river gun grab right during exactly. the flooding there things like that uh, there does seem to be when you have a federal police force um they're they're at the bidding ultimately of their federal masters and so if the federal masters don't want you getting on a plane because you're you're unjabbed or they you know they they want to restrict your freedom for whatever uh sent 20 bucks to a convoy right there you go yeah you sent 20 <laughs> bucks to a convoy or you know uh you're kind of at at their whim so I, I get that um okay so so one of the steps forward then jillian is grabbing some more power for ourselves or just it sounds similar to what what you're talking about or similar to the things that daniel smith is doing right now she's you know seems to be at least attempting to exert some sovereignty is would that be fair to say I think so. From from everything I've seen from her so far, it seems like she's trying to rein that back in so that the province is in more in control of its money and what it's doing, like everything, the gun um, situation where um, she's basically taking the power away from 
uh, Trudeau's gun grab again. Right. We were down this yeah. road again. I think it was with Cray Chen with the whole gun registry thing. And now we're doing again, but worse. Right, right. Trying to do, right. So, well, and, yeah. And, and again, that's a, that's another case for provincial police, right? Because if you're an RCMP, uh, who do you, wh whose orders are you taking here? Are you grabbing those guns because Trudeau says so? Or are you uh, abiding by your municipal con? Uh, bosses or what your provincial boss. So that's a good point. Is there ultimately, um, do you, do you think that confederation is doomed to fail? Are we just two different of people? Can, can we, you know, e pluribus unum this thing out of many one or, or. I, I, you know, before the pandemic, I would have said, you know, we can still fix this. There's things that we can do, but each province has to be um, willing to go the distance and pull the plugs so that we're not as um, controlled by the federal government. But since the pandemic and everything that happened there, I just don't know. I really don't know. And I think that's why so many people in the West, why it's coming up again. I mean, we're kind of on the other side of this pandemic and people are starting to go, okay, there's a lot, these issues never went away during it. In fact, they've gotten worse. And therefore now what do we do? And so there's a lot of, a lot more people that are going like, so I, I did, I was actually on the ground um, during the convoy. I went on like a Wednesday morning. So there were, you know, I missed out on the hot tubs and all the fun, but right. I was there and you couldn't throw a stone without hitting an Albertan, you know, like, it was a lot of people from the West and quite often I, I, I think, and I, I mean, who knows, I could be wrong. I'm not inside the crazy brain of Justin Trudeau, but I kind of think that maybe the reason that he was calling all of these people such horrendous names is because he was under the impression that it was all a bunch of, you know, dirty Westerners mm. that were coming. And so obviously they're, you know, they're racist and, sexist and you know all the ists and obias and all the rest because yeah. that's his perception of what we are out west which is completely wrong but the other thing was that wasn't all there was at that convoy there was also a lot of quebecers that came across that bridge and stood mm -hmm. shoulder to shoulder with their albertan cousins so mm -hmm. there's part of me knowing that that thinks no there's still hope for this country we just have to get out of our own ways and start maybe working out like with each other, but outside of that Laurentian elite golden triangle, as I like to call it. Right. Yeah. Well, I guess Quebec and Alberta have some similarities there in, in that there's strong kind of secessionist tendencies in both these places. Although I, I think Albertans are, you know, the, the secessionist movement here is more born out of a, a disgust or hatred of, of, um, Ottawa and I think in, in Quebec it might be more aspirational it might be a little bit more like this is our culture we want to celebrate it and and not have it adulterated by outsiders or something like that um but common cause or, ways, right it's it's about protection in two different ways in Quebec right. it's cultural in Alberta and Saskatchewan in particular it's uh, about um not having the power and control over our own lives and what we do with it right Right. Interesting. Okay. So, uh, what, what can we do? What can my listeners do? Is there, is there any plan that Jillian has, or is it just kind of like, let's get these ideas out there? And I think first of all, it's, it, it is about education. Like let's tell people what has happened historically. That's why I wrote the book. It was about mm. giving people, it's, it's not a long book. It's kind of short. I condense a lot of information into those very few yeah. pages. Yeah, guys, it's, it's not a hard read. It, it was, um, you know, I, I think it took me about three hours or something like that, uh, you know, and it's written in a very approachable language and it's full of information that I didn't know before. And, you know, I, some of it I probably was taught in school, but it, it didn't click. It didn't stick because it didn't see it just seemed like another pointless fact. But now these pointless facts put together in that nice approachable book paint a really clear picture of how we got where we're at. And, and I never really had that picture before. 
Well, and, and that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to put it together so that people could use it so that whenever someone from outside of the province or outside of the country even is saying, hey, what's the deal with Western Canada? You can say, okay, it's, you know, what's eating Gilbert grape? Well, it's, yeah. there's an actual thing that's going on here and uh, it's legitimate and it's long. Like the history of it is huge. And we're, we're still fighting the same battle and we're not getting anywhere. We're not getting any traction on it. And unfortunately, um, I think that if any one part of the country leaves, whether it's Quebec, whether it's the West, whether it's the Aboriginal population that just say like, we're done with the, the federal government, that would be the end of Canada. Now, that same thing, if we were to work together, could actually put the federal government on its heels. But we have to work together. And that is a very difficult thing to do. Because, I mean, look, on, on the right in Canada, can't even agree on a party or what we stand for. Yeah. So how do we get past all of that? I don't know. I mean, the, the electoral system in this country is so skewed that Montreal, Toronto, um, maybe Vancouver, <laughs> these are the places with the power. They basically dictate what the rest of the country is going to do. Right, right. And and that, I mean, the Maritimes are not well represented. They have been treated unfairly historically as well. Yeah. The territories have been treated horribly unfairly. Um, BC, even some of the stuff that they have tried to do historically, it's just, it is a federal government that is so far removed from the rest of the population they have no idea what's going out, what's going on in the West, and they don't really care because they, none of us have power outside of that. The Golden Triangle is actually Montreal, Ottawa, and Toronto. That that is the area that has all the power and has all the say in this country. They don't need many other votes to be able to push it over the line. And usually, right. what they go for is they throw money at the Maritimes just so that they can get it over the line. I mean, there are people in Northern Ontario that feel the same way as Westerners. They're frustrated right. with a federal government that just doesn't listen to their concerns. Amen. Hmm. All right. So maybe we we, we can um, touch base with these people. You know, from my perspective as a libertarian, it, it's like the bigger government gets, the, the harder it, it, it becomes a zero-sum game. If you're not holding the gun on people, you're having the gun held on you. And... Um, you know, ultimately, if we're all going to get along, we have to minimize government as much as possible, maybe have it do some basic things like, you know, territorial defense and courts and maybe a federal police force. But other than that, just stay the hell out of our way. Let the provinces do most of the governing, even let the cities and the municipalities do most of the governing. I mean, gov governing should be done at the most local level possible. The further yeah. out you get, the, the smaller the governing should be. And then we could actually get along because then it yeah. doesn't matter. You know, right, right now, a lot of people out West are, are worried about uh, people moving across, moving across Roxham Road or something like that in Quebec. Well, that's 2000 miles away. Why should I care about that? Well, I should care about that because I'm forced into association with these people. I'll have to pay for their health care. They go to, if they, they get in trouble with the law, I'll have to pay for the criminal justice and house them in a jail. You know, if they, uh, they have to use our roads, whatever. I'm forced into associate. That's the only reason I should ever care about those people well, moving that, over that line. And because they're not being allowed to stay in Quebec because Quebec has a veto on how many people can stay in Quebec. It means that they're being shipped out to other parts of the country. Right. So you have these people that could be criminal elements. We don't know. Um, there, there's been some evidence to that fact. Um, so these people are being shipped in, into other places into Western Canada because there's so much space there. Like, why not? And then you have housing, which, you know, to provide housing for people, it's got to be built. It costs money. What happens to that, the, the cost of housing, if there's not enough houses and there's too many people, well, the, the prices of housing, it goes up. Like right. it's a, a cyclical system. Mm. And whenever you don't have control over those things, you have no control over what happens with your money or the cost of, of everyday items. Like yeah. it's a huge, huge deal and we're not paying enough attention to it. And that's why people need to understand how this all works, how it all ties together because they just don't. Right. The, the federal government should only be controlled up 
or, or only have control over um, whatever's going on outside, like our relationship with things outside of our country. So right. our national interests as far as um, international trade, international like defense mm. of the whole country, those kinds of things, they shouldn't be meddling in the cities well, yeah. or the provinces in the right, way that right. they are, especially under Justin Trudeau. Yeah. Amen. I, I want to ask you real quick, um, uh, just, just to sh totally shift gears here for a second. How did you get interested in this topic and, and want to write a book on it? Well, um, first of all, I was raised in Alberta. Um, my dad was an Alberta business owner. Um, he was um, tertiary to the oil and gas industry. So our my childhood was sort of all involved in that my dad, um, whenever I was growing up, we had businessmen and politicians in and out of our house all the time. So I heard all of it. Didn't want anything to do with it at that time. Right. <laughs> that was just my dad's friends that I yeah. were boring. Boring. <laughs> <laughs> And then, you know, I, I as I got older, I started getting involved in, in um, politics just on the local front. And um, that just sort of sparked my interest. And then whenever it was the 2019 election that really caused the book to happen mm. because it started off, I was just going to write an article um, for the Western standard or, or something like that, but it just turned into like this huge long rant. And I thought, okay, this is not a, this is not um, an article anymore. There's too much information here. I need to turn it into a book. I need to organize it and take the rantiness out and actually make it something that mm. people can use so that they can defend themselves in their own arguments as well when it comes to this situation. Right. And, and that's where the book was born. And, and to you know inform those who don't know what's going on here. And, and from my understanding, I do have some Eastern people that have also bought the book. So um, right. there are some people that are looking at it that are paying attention to it. So yeah, well, I mean, it, it get, you know, it lends insight into the Western mind a little bit, right? Uh, for for someone, how do you, because I, I think you're right. I mean, I, I don't think Trudeau's perspective of Western Canadians is that unusual. Um, from what I've seen in my dealings with and it, it, it's, you know, it's not out of a place of malice. It's it's largely out of a place of perception and ignorance and just media portrayal, um, you know, uh, of who we are as Westerners. Um, and, and I want to point out, Justin Trudeau was eight years old and on that train with his dad whenever his father gave Westerners the finger. Right, right. So yeah. that would change somebody. Sure. That, that would change someone. And I imagine that um, he was being exposed to the most, um, let's say, put off Westerners in, as he was traveling, right? That it wasn't our best face that he was necessarily meeting in his travels with his father. It was the most angry people uh, that were prepared to do the most, you know, cross lines that, that respectable people like you and I might not be willing to cross uh, as civil <laughs> Westerners or something like that. So I could see how that might uh, skew one's perception. Um, just on a selfish note, as a aspiring writer myself, how do you write a book? How do you get it done? Do you, do you have like a daily practice? How much time? I, I want to know some details here. <laughs> do you, do you, do you, like first thing in the morning, what do you do? Do you have a cold bath and uh, say a mantra and then uh, take some kind of brain energy? Uh, do you smoke a bunch of cigarettes? Do you snort a it's line of Coke? What? Not that hard. Okay. <laughs> it just sounds that hard. Right. Um, really, what you do is you put down the points that you want to talk about, whether it's questions that you have that you want answers to or whether it's just statements. This one, like I said, the book came out of the, just the rant on a page and then I organized it into... Um, hopefully cogent thoughts <laughs> that would make sense for yeah. the message. Well, I, I really like how you structured it. it. It's all about like a relationship, right? Like the, the kiss goodbye and the, the tender beginnings. And, you know, I thought it was a very interesting the way you, uh, it made it look like it was a relationship, right? That's kind of sour now. And like, you know, we're kind of ready for a divorce, but anyway, sorry, go on. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. Like it, it, it's, yeah. um, you kind of wanted to create a character to it and a theme. Right. And I thought that really what we're talking about is relationships and misunderstandings. And it's gotten so sour right. that 
Yeah. Do you, do, know, do you, do you make it a practice of saying I'm sitting down for two hours and I'm writing like, do you just force yourself to do it. Is it like a daily practice? Do you set a deadline of say, I got to have something by this point. How do you, what are those tricks? I, I do. I um, generally, I will sit down. Sometimes it's word count. Sometimes it's an, an hour. Just, it, it depends on what I'm working on at the time. I just finished um, a, a romance novella. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Yeah. And that one, um, it was a matter of sitting down every day and trying to map out the story and um, and then just get words on the page, at least, you know, 500, even if, you know, on wow. the bad days, it's like, if I just get 500 done, then yeah. I'm good. Then I can take, you know, I can have a cup of coffee or whatever. Right. Um, so it's, it's, and, and, and is it just like regurgitating it on, or just like getting it out onto a page and then like, is editing done later or do you kind of adjust as you go? Um, for the, if I'm writing articles, cause I do a lot of different writing. So if I'm writing articles, I will spit it out on the page. I'll sort of, I, I'm one of those people that tends to outline, but not huge outlines. So I have like a skeleton of what I want to say, right. and then I will go over each one of those points so that I've got it filled out as much as I possibly can. And then I'll come back to it later and do some of the editing. Um, okay. I call it brain shifting in between because you can't look at that same page and catch some of your error errors unless you walk away for a bit and completely think about something else. At least for me, mm -hmm. that's how it works. When it came to writing books, um, I will go back over it again later for the editing. Um, it's usually, I have a certain amount of structure, but I also let it kind of flow. So um, I know what I want to say basically, and then it's more flowing in the way that I'm saying it. Or, or the right. way that I'm writing it out, um, then I just let it go. And if something else comes up, that's fine. So that there's always that kind of um, ability to add or take things out or, or make it sound a little bit better. And I'll play with that sometimes for hours on one paragraph. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's it, it. So it really, really depends. But um, there has to be that discipline because if you don't yeah. and get the writing done. Ah, I knew it was something. I knew it wasn't as simple as snorting a few rails of coke and going at it god damn it i'm gonna actually have to be disciplined it can be a lot of fun i i also yeah. finished um a screenplay that has now been filmed for a short film called howlin circus and oh, uh howlin circus howlin circus yeah nice cool <laughs> that one um it was a, a writing partner and myself and uh he and i just were spitballing ideas back and forth through text quite often or you know voice messaging that that whole kind of thing and it was a lot of fun so awesome depending on what you're writing it can be a just a fantastic fun experience so well, don't i feel like i feel like i've gotten an incredible amount of value from you today, <laughs> i feel like i should be charging my listeners for this this last uh five or ten minutes here where you're giving some some stellar advice uh i do have i am on a hard cap out here but uh, i really appreciate you coming on i've learned so much and uh it was fantastic i, I may hit you up again uh for some more writing advice and uh Anytime. i really appreciate the generosity of your time uh, and again folks uh, go to Amazon or wherever you get books, and it's the Wexit, Wexit, the Reluctant Rebellion by Jillian Davis. It's a fantastic book, uh, a very approachable read, and it arm yourself. It won't take you that long. Like I say, two or three hours uh, will get you through it. And I, I need to go back and actually uh, read it a little bit more in depth, but um, but it's a lot of good information there. So thank you for writing the book, and thanks for coming on the Tim Owen Show. Thank you for having me and for plugging my book. <laughs> I'm no problem.